Let's open our Bibles now to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22, as we continue our study of verses 1 through 19, the test of faith for Abraham. When we met last, we began a discussion of one of the most intriguing passages in all of Genesis, if not in all of the Bible, that being Genesis 22, and the command of God for Abraham to sacrifice the child of the promise, Isaac. Given the stunning nature of God's test of Abraham, and we learn right up front that it is a test, it's, that's exactly what it is, I felt like it was appropriate to spend last week introducing the passage, and we learned through our introduction last week that although the command that God gave to Abraham to sacrifice his son would have surely appeared irrational from Abraham's perspective, at the same time he had complete confidence in the rationality of the God who gave the command. The command that we began to study last week in verse 2 could not have made sense to Abraham. We need to to acknowledge that up front. No way. He didn't have enough information to analyze God's order as being a rational order. But he knew and he trusted the God who was giving the command. And that is so key in the proper understanding of this passage. Because throughout the course of his life, God had proven himself over and over again to Abraham, throughout the course of Abraham's life, he had proven himself over and over again that he could be trusted. So for Abraham to trust God here was not, it was not an irrational leap of faith. But rather it was a very reasonable step of faith. Neither belief in God or faith in Christ is an irrational leap of faith. Human beings have been given sufficient information, sufficient evidence, if you will, both that God exists and that Jesus of Nazareth was exactly who he said he was. We have been given enough evidence of those two things to rationally and reasonably trust him. I am not a Christian against reason. I know some people say that they are. Some people say, I'm a Christian in spite of all rationality. I'm a Christian in spite of all reason. Not me. I'm a Christian not against reason, but consistent with reason. In fact, in my view, it's the most unreasonable, irrational thing a person could do to either deny the existence of an infinite personal God or to deny the saviorhood, the messiahship of Jesus Christ. That's what's irrational, given the evidence. Not apart from the evidence, not against the evidence, but given the evidence, it's the height of irrationality to reject it. I think that we have far too long accepted the Kierkegaardian view of irrational faith and allowed men like Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins to claim the intellectual or the rational high ground and portray Christians as feeble-minded, intellectually challenged, needy people who believe in God primarily because of a deep-seated emotional need that God fills or the idea of God fills in us. Most of you know by now, Christopher Hitchens, I just mentioned him, most of you know by now that he's in the dying process. He's got cancer. 
a very serious form of cancer, and, and I find his response to this fascinating. I also find the response of some of the Christian community fascinating and disgusting about it, but I find Hitchens' response fascinating. There was a piece on, on uh, National Review's website yesterday that actually piggybacked a CNN interview with Hitchens, and it intrigued me because it, the title of it was Hitchens on God and Prayer, something like that. So I thought, wow, maybe Christopher Hitchens has turned the corner here just a little bit. I mean, it's certainly, certainly hopeful of that. The interview started off in a very interesting way. He's, the, the, the interviewer asked him after some preliminary things about his fear of death, which he kind of gave what I thought was a little false bravado there. But then asked him about what, all these, what about all these people praying for you? And Hitchens said something, the first thing was actually really disgusting, not from Hitchens' standpoint, but from, from the Christian community standpoint. He said, you know, yeah, I understand there's people praying for me. These people praying out there, there are Christian websites that are asking people to pray that I would die a painful and horrible death. Now, that's disgusting. That is not, that is not the love of Christ. Christ that, Christopher Hitchens um, is, uh, could maybe be a little bit hard to get along with, maybe. But Jesus died for him as well. The Christian prayer should be for Christopher Hitchens to turn around and to see the love of Jesus. Now, but, but then the interview went on to ask him a, another question. He said, well, what about the people who are genuinely praying for you? What about them? Do you want them to stop? And you know what he said? He said, no, I don't want them to stop. He said, if it helps fill some need in them, some emotional need, tell them to feel free to continue. But it's not affecting me at all. And then unfortunately... Christopher said this at the end of the interview, and I paraphrase. He said, listen, I will never accept either the existence of the Almighty or submit to him in my right mind. I will never do that. He said, perhaps at the end of my life when people fill me full of drugs and I'm out of my mind, then perhaps I may accept the existence of an Almighty. But if anybody comes to you and says that Christopher Hitchens made a deathbed to conversion, Deathbed conversion to Christianity, don't believe them. Now, there are several things in that story that we could spend the, the whole rest of our time on. The first is the disgusting nature of Christians who would pray something so, so evil in vengeance. I, I thought vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. I mean, we just don't have the right to pray prayers like that. The, the other thing with regard to, to Hitchens thinking that we're feeble-minded, and if we need God, then just go ahead and do it, but it's not going to help him any. The saddest thing for me was that he was using his reason. He was using what he thinks is his reason in, in arguing into a position of irrationality. There's just too much evidence out there that God exists. Don't, don't let people like Hitchens or Dawkins take some sort of intellectual high ground and make you feel like you're feeble-minded because you're a believer in the Lord Jesus. That's where the evidence is. Let's read verses 1 through 19 of Genesis chapter 22. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Verse 2, and he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Then in verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder, and we will worship and return to you. 
And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took his hand and, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told them, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on top of the wood, on top of the altar, on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Verse 15, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing, and you have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens, and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Verse 19, So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. This narrative is divided up rather nicely into three parts. The first part, verses 1 and 2, the presentation of the test to Abraham. Verses 3 through 10, Abraham's compliance with God's instructions. And then in verses 11 through 19, God's approval of Abraham's obedience. This morning, we're going to focus the rest of our time together today just strictly on verses 1, 1 and 2. The test itself, the presentation of the test to Abraham. And then hopefully next week we will cover the next two sections and, and put this together in a, in a three-unit narrative. But I, I want to spend just a bit of time this morning making sure that we understand the significance of this test. And it's a test for Abraham. And verses 1 and 2 make that clear. That although Isaac is certainly intimately involved, I hope we would all agree with that, this is primarily a test of Abraham's faith, not of Isaac's submission or Isaac's obedience. This is Abraham's test. And thankfully, right up front, we are told as the readers of this text that this is a test. I'm so thankful that God did this because we have information now that Abraham does not. Without this information, had we just had to read this narrative as, as though we were in Abraham's shoes we would probably be shocked out of our socks and wonder if perhaps God has lost his marbles and somehow is desiring child sacrifice. But graciously, and I'm so grateful for it, graciously, God removes that issue right away so there can be no misunderstanding. No misunderstanding at all. God hates human sacrifice. As many Old Testament passages assert, including Leviticus 18.21, that says, Neither shall 
These are the Israelites. Neither shall any of you give your offspring to offer them to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of the Lord your God. Molech was the God of the Amorites. Israel's children, Israel may throw their children into the fire, but this is, this is something that was abhorrent to Israel. It was certainly not required by him. In fact, quite the opposite. Israel's neighbors did that. But Israel was never to do that. And if they did do that, it was punishable by death. God, God does not desire child sacrifice. In Leviticus 20, verse 2, You shall say to the sons of Israel, Any man from the sons of Israel, or from the aliens sojourning in Israel, who gives any of his offspring to Molech, shall surely be put to death. The people shall stone him with stones. So this, this passage in no way, in no way whatsoever, indicates that God desires child sacrifice. So now that we have that out of the way, and I'm so glad that we do, I'm so glad God let us know right up front that this is a test so we wouldn't have to wonder. But now we look at verse, verse 1 of chapter 22. Now it came to pass after these things. Some time has elapsed between the end of chapter 21 and the beginning of chapter 22. A lot of work has been done to try to figure out, to deduce from the test exactly how much time. The best guess by the best scholars is that it's been approximately 10 years from the end of chapter 21 to the beginning of chapter 22. So uh, Isaac is old enough to carry the wood, a fairly heavy amount of wood, up, the, up Mount Moriah, which is the modern-day Temple Mount. It's where Solomon built his temple later. By the way... It's interesting, Solomon built the temple on the place where, where Isaac was to be sacrificed. But on the Mount of Olives, he also built uh, altars and shrines to Molech. You know, Solomon was one of these guys that when he was good, he was good. And when he was bad, he was really, really bad. But Isaac, Isaac must have been old enough to carry this wood. Most Old Testament scholars believe that it had been about 10 years from the time that the, this last chapter ends, and in the last chapter Isaac had been weaned, and that time they weaned children at about three years old, a little later than what we do now. And so it's assumed that Isaac is somewhere 13, 14, maybe even 15 years old by the time chapter 22 begins. God is testing Abraham here. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. He's testing him. God does not tempt anyone to sin. You recall our study of James chapter 1. We, we finished it not all that long ago. In that chapter, James made it clear that God doesn't tempt anyone to sin. He tests our faith, but he doesn't tempt us to sin. In the scriptures, there are really only three sources of temptation to sin that are, that are outlined. The first being our flesh, this body of corruption. Some would call it the old sin nature. That's a source of temptation to sin. Probably the biggest source of temptation to sin that we have. Constantly, our old sin nature is throwing signals up to, to do things that we ought not to do. You see that in television commercials sometimes. Marketers have used that in advertising where they've got the one little person in white sitting on one shoulder and the one in red sitting on the other shoulder, and hopefully the one in white wins out. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but our flesh does send up signals of temptation to us and will send those signals up until the day we die. Ephesians chapter 4 lets us know specifically that the flesh is this sinful trend that we have. This old man is being corrupted 
It's not that it's been corrupted, it's being corrupted. It's an ongoing process, and it'll happen until the day we die. First source of temptation. The second source of temptation is Satan. The Bible says that Satan tempts us, that Satan tempts the believer. Satan is not omnipresent, though, can only be in one place at one time, so it's doubtful, although it's possible, that Satan himself has tempted maybe one of us personally. It's possible, but since he can only be in one place at one time, he also has a system, he has a a dominion over which he, he rules, Satan's system or the, the cosmos. And so he, he either tests us himself, tempts us himself or he tempts us through his emissaries or through his system. Now those are the three sources of temptation, our flesh, Satan, and Satan's system. God's not on that list. God, God is not on the biblical list of those who tempt. But God does test. And all of us have been tested by God. Our faith is tested by God. And that's a good thing. It indicates we have enough faith to be tested. If you've gone years and years and years and years and years and years and years of your life and you, you can't point to any period of your life where your faith has ever been tested, then maybe you need to sit down in your room and, and, and determine whether you have any faith to be tested. I'm not out there looking for trouble. But if you're a growing believer, sometimes things are going to come into our periphery that will test us. This is a test. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here am I. Here I am. This is, if this wasn't such a serious narrative, we, we would almost chuckle at the way that, that Abraham, God calls Abraham and Abraham answers him in these, in these key moments. But it's a very, very serious narrative. I don't think Abraham would have thought it funny at all. And he said, take now your son. Listen to how Isaac is described. And, and while you're listening... See if this, this description doesn't also maybe at least partially fit someone else that you know. Listen carefully. And he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. I don't know about you, but didn't God do that once himself? Isaac's called... Abraham's only son here. He's called it actually in the original text. It's, it's really emphatic how much Isaac is beloved of Abraham. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The parallels are so striking. We can't, it's hard to miss those. You see, Abraham is being asked in this test to give up that which is dearest to him. Hold that thought and let me, let me fast forward 2,000 years into history from Abraham's time. God gave up that which was dearest to him to purchase our salvation. He didn't call upon some unnamed, unknown angel from some remote part of the universe that had no family that no one would miss. No family, no friends. We're not going to miss that one. And say, you go to the cross and pay for the sins of these human beings who, by the way, right now are my enemies. You go pay for them. No, it was his beloved son, it was his only begotten son, very similar terminology, that paid the price for our salvation. The asking price in this test of Abraham is everything Abraham had. I know he loved Sarah, and I know he loved Ishmael, and I know he loved his servants, but apparently, according to the way this text is read, is written rather, apparently... Isaac 
occupied a supreme position of love in Abraham's life. This is no easy task. This is that which Abraham considered the single most important thing in his life. No disrespect to Sarah or anyone else. But he's asking Abraham to give up something very special. Now he's called Abraham's only son. We already know from the text that he's got another son, right? I mean, the previous chapter talks about Ishmael. A previous chapter has talked about Ishmael. We've been introduced to him. And also, if you've read ahead, you know that after the death of Sarah, which comes up soon, then Abraham has six sons by Keturah. So, so even if we just look at that as future, what in the world is God doing when he says, take now your son, your beloved son, your only son, and sacrifice him? Well, this, this, the term only there is very much like monogenes in the New Testament, it means uniquely born. It's the unique son. You see, Isaac is the son of the promise. Isaac is the son for which Abraham had waited 25 years. This, and he loved him dearly. Oh, I love, I love my children dearly, just like you love yours dearly. I can't imagine God coming and saying, I want you to sacrifice one. The closest thing I can think to that is when a nation comes and says, I want you to give us your son or your daughter so that they may give their life for this nation in a military conflict of some sort. Maybe that, maybe that comes close. And I know some of you have children in the military that are on the front lines right now. Boy, I, I really, truly feel for you and pray for you. and pray for your, We pray for your kids every Wednesday night and more often than that. But, but Abraham is being asked to give up that which is most dear to him. Take now your son, your only son, who you love. And in, ca- in, case, I, in case Abraham didn't know, but, but he knows this is probably for our benefit. Isaac, he's not talking about Ishmael here. Take Isaac, whom you love, Isaac, to, to go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Isaac is not the only son in the sense of, of numerically. He's, he's the unique son. He's the son of the promise. He's the beloved son. So, so really, there seem to be three aspects to this test. The first is, take your son. The second, go to the land of Moriah. And then finally, offer him there as a sacrifice. What went through Abraham's mind that night? We don't know. We're going to see in the next verse. He, he obeys immediately, though. But that's for next week. But what went through his mind that night, we don't know. But I know if it was me, I'm sure I would have been on my bed tossing and turning all night. I know I would not have slept a wink. I know that. Because I've had far less, less tests in terms of degree of intensity, and I haven't slept a, week, a wink. So I know I wouldn't have slept a wink here. But I probably would have been thinking something like, Oh, Lord, why Isaac? He's, he's the child of the promise. He's the most important thing on this planet to me. Why him? You see, that's the test. That's, that's the test. Had it been something else, it wouldn't, it, the test would not have reached that degree of magnitude. That's the test. Was Abraham willing to give up that which was most important to him in this life if God said to do it? That which was most precious to him. That's the test. Who did he love more? 
the God who gave him Isaac or Isaac that was given. And again, we've already learned. I mean, we know right up front that this is not a test of child sacrifice. We know right up front that God's not going to go through with this. And again, I'm very, very grateful that we know that up front. But Abraham didn't. That's the test. And as difficult as it is, my friends, my, my beloved, as difficult as it is, we all need to remember that everything, everything that we possess currently came from God and belongs to God. Everything and everyone. That includes my home. That includes the money that's in my pocket. That includes my children. That includes my spouse. That includes my health. That includes my life. Everything that I possess currently came from God and ultimately belongs to God. And I know we resist that because we're independent creatures. But let me tell you, that resistance is coming from the flesh. It's coming from the old sin nature, not the Holy Spirit. That's one of the hardest things in life to realize divine ownership of everything. Everything. Well, there are practical realities to this big time. I've heard people both speak to me personally in my office, on the phone. I've heard it, people interviewed on the radio and on television that would say something like this. A mother or a father would be speaking with tears in their eyes, but anger in their mouth and on their lips. And they say, God took my beloved son from me. He took my child from me. How could he do that? I thought he loved me. How could he allow my child to have suffered and died in that way? And then they become angry at God. I'm more aware that at least... Three families in this room have, at least maybe more, have suffered this. So please, please, please do not consider me insensitive right now. But God didn't take your child from you. He took his own beloved child home to be with him. That's ultimately, at the end of the day, that child belongs to God. Now, it doesn't mean that that child is not beloved of you. It doesn't mean that that child might not have been the most important thing in your life. But at the end of the day, that's God's child. And if he desires to take that child to be at home with him, then it is, it is not a rational thing to do to become angry with him over it. And again, please, please do not consider me insensitive. I, I don't mean this in an, in an insensitive way at all. Because I love you and, and I know the, the pain, I can only imagine rather the pain that you've suffered. But it's God's child. He took his child home. Now, that's not to minimize your suffering or anyone's suffering. Please don't ever do that at the funeral of a child. So, well, that was his child. You know, you shouldn't be crying. Of course you, of course that's legitimate. But we need to get the, the pri- our priorities right. Let, let me move on to something that maybe uh, that we can handle a little bit better, our money. You know, sometimes people have a, a problem with 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 giving money to the Lord's work. And, and in certain denominations, particularly certain churches, will stress that you need to give God His 10%. Well, no. You're, actually, you're giving God 10%. You're keeping 90% of what's already belonged to Him. There, there is no His 10%. He owns 100% of it. We just decide what percentage we're going to keep. 
of his money. Stewardship. Now, see, that's the test. This was what was most dear to Abraham. Abraham had to recognize that Isaac belonged to God. And again, thankfully, we, we realize that it's just a test. That God never had any intention of allowing Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. We know that God abhors child sacrifice. But that was the test. The test had to do with priority. Who's first? Is your spouse first? Now, I know you love her or you love him, and I hope you do. And I hope you love them dearly and deeply. But I hope you recognize God is the priority in your life. Because if you do, then your relationship with your spouse is going to be aces. The relationship you have with your kids is going to be phenomenal. Corey Timbone told Chuck Swindoll one time that, that Chuck said, You need to hold on loosely to these kids. You're holding on too tightly. Hold on loosely. Because they belong to God. He owns everything. So he recognized, Abraham recognized that what was dearest to him actually belonged to the Almighty. I think there's a reason why the text is so descriptive of of Abraham's love for Isaac. It lets us know that. This is not a nobody to him. It's not a throwaway. It's important stuff. It's no small thing. He loved his son and he loved him dearly. But he willingly submitted to the truth that his beloved son ultimately belonged to God. In the sense of ownership, belonged to God. When we face the test of life that come our way, it would be helpful to remember this. It will insulate us from making the really bad mistake that people sometimes make of becoming angry with God when he calls one of his own home. Or even us. I had one very dear friend that I will not mention. He got very, very angry with God on the last, in the last 24 hours of his life. Why are you not healing me? He just couldn't figure out why did God not answer his prayers to be healed. It was a, it was a very emotional discussion we had in the hours before his death. We are his. Our kids are his, our home is his, our money is his, our health is his, and our life, our very life that we possess belongs to God. It came from him, and it belongs to him. Now, this does not mean that we love our loved ones any less, please, or that we become insensitive regarding the loss of a loved one, please, or that we pretend that it doesn't matter to us. Of course it matters. Heaven forbid, of course it matters. Those with a capacity for life and for love, for friendship, these are the people that will suffer the most, the greatest pain when one that we love so deeply no longer resides on this earth. But anger with the Creator is not the appropriate response. That all started when when certain aspects of psychology were injected into Christian thought. That's not a Christian thought. That's a psychological thought. Someday, what we believe will intersect with our experience. And then, maybe for the first time in our whole lives, we'll see what we're really made of when that day comes. Is this just an intellectual exercise that I've been participating in? Or do I really believe what I say I believe? 
Someday, those things will enter. For some of you, it's intersecting right now. You're anticipating the death of someone that you love very, very dearly. Maybe you're anticipating your own death. And now, what we say we believe is intersecting with real life. And it's time now. It's time to see if we really believe what we say we believe. Or or have we just been playing games all this time? We'll see next week that for Abraham, this was no intellectual exercise. It was real. And he had complete trust in the God who called him out of Ur. And he loved him deeply. And he, understand, and he understood that the God that called him was completely worthy of his trust. And he placed God first. Isaac second. Heavenly Father, what a difficult test this would have been. Uh, so grateful that this is uh, that we read of this, that we can learn from it. And Father, you've given us these things on this earth. You've given us husbands and wives. You've given us children and grandchildren. You've given us friends that we love so deeply. But at the same time, we recognize that somehow, as much as we love them, you love them even more. We just stand in awe of that. But we love you, Father, and we trust you. And at the same time, we can't read this passage without thinking of the sacrifice that you made. Because you stopped Abraham. You stopped him from offering his beloved as a sacrifice, but you didn't stop. There are not words to express our gratitude for what you have done for us. We just say that we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.